Turn with me to Genesis 15. I'll begin reading in verse 7. Genesis 15, begin reading in verse 7, really picking up where Russell left off last week. He gave us the first of two visions in Genesis 15. The Lord comes to Abram and gives Abram two visions to really assure him of the trustworthiness of his word. And we're going to see the second vision today. You looked at the first vision last week with Russell. So let's read that vision. Genesis 15, starting in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants or slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray that we receive it as such. Father, we ask, that you would pour out your spirit upon us. That we may hear what our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has to say to his people. Not only the people of Israel in the Exodus, when Moses originally wrote this, but the people in your church in every age. May your spirit give us understanding protect us from error, and cause us to rejoice in our Lord. Cause us to rejoice in a God who is so kind, not only to make promises, but to give continual assurances that his word is trustworthy. And may we trust him in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by just making a couple of brief comments about how chapter 15 functions, because this chapter is really one unit. And chapter 15 functions as a transition from the land promised, God promised Abram land, 
It's a transition from the land promised in Genesis 12. And you see that real focus on the promised land from Genesis 12 through 14 to the second promise God made to Abram, which was a multiplying offspring or a seed. And you'll see the seed promise really focused on between Genesis 16 and 22. So the chapter actually has a vision of both of those promises. These two promises really sum up all that was lost in the fall of Adam. Man was no longer God's people. That has to do with the seed or the offspring. And man was no longer in God's dwelling place. Under his blessing. That has to do with the promised land. In Abram, in the promise God made to him, all of that that we see in Genesis 3 is going to be restored. Not only to Abram, but to all the families of the earth. They will all be blessed in him. In chapter 15, the Lord provides two visions to Abraham, or Abram, that give him assurance of this. First, the Lord provides him a vision with regard to the seed promise, which is what Russell looked at last week. And second, the Lord gives him a vision with regard to the land promise. The first vision in Genesis 15, 1 through 6 is regard to the seed, and at the end of it we see that Abram believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. Abram's seed will multiply and will bless all the families of the earth. Now after that vision, when Abram said to believe God, it's counted him as righteousness, that verse, Genesis 15, 6, is made much of in the New Testament. Abram becomes an exemplar of faith. In fact, he becomes the father of all who believe, Romans 4, Galatians 3, etc., the second vision, the second vision in Genesis 15, 7 through 20, is with regard to the land promise. The Lord is again assuring Abram that he will keep his promise. And it's to the second vision that we're looking today. But before we look at that vision, I want to drive home the point of both visions in this chapter. In both visions, God guarantees the trustworthiness of his word. God is, if you will, giving Abram sensible signs so that he'll believe the Lord will keep his promises. When I say sensible signs, these are acting sort of in that way. I don't mean the sacramental sign and seal of circumcision. That's going to come in Genesis 17 when God again reassures Abram. What I mean here is that a sensible sign here is something that you can see, taste, touch, smell, hear, like circumcision will be, like the rainbow is, was, and is. He's giving him this to assure him that he'll keep his promise. And I want you to pay close attention to this. The Lord cares for his people. And thus the Lord is keen to strengthen their faith. I hope you heard that, saints. God does not just make promises for you to believe. He provides help to persevere in faith. Sadly, we're used to promises being broken by others. So promises become difficult to keep. Children in here, you probably understand this already. 
I'm sure some of your friends have said to you, I promise, only to later break the promise. And so we can struggle to believe promises. The Lord knows our frailty, and in a number of ways, he provides us with assurance. He does so because we need our faith in Christ to be assured. We need to be helped. We need to be encouraged. We need to be strengthened. So this morning, we'll see how the Lord strengthens the faith of Abram, and thus how our own faith is assured and strengthened. We'll take the text really in three parts. So first part is Genesis 15, 7. We're going to look at how the Lord grounds his promise in his own character and who and what he is. The Lord grounds his promise in his own character, Genesis 15, 7. Second, the Lord provides a sensible sign in Genesis 15, 8 and following, really. But we'll look specifically at 15, 8 and 9. And third... In Genesis 15, 9 through 21, the Lord ratifies a covenant. Now, this is, I'm going to explain what that means. He ratifies a covenant, and he does so with a self-maledictory oath. I will explain that as well. So let's look first at how the Lord grounds his promise in his own character. How he grounds his promise in his own character. Look at Genesis 15, 7 with me. And he, that's the Lord said to him, that's Abram. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I don't know if you hear what the Lord's doing here. He's grounding the promise to Abram upon his own being and character. He is the God who cannot lie. He is the God who cannot fail. He is the God who made promises to Abram in Genesis 12 and who has faithfully kept those promises until now. And we see an almost identical statement, just so you know, literarily, grammatically, we see an almost identical statement in the Mosaic Covenant. Remember the Ten Commandments just before it? And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of Ur, I'm the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord covenanting with Israel at Sinai is the Lord who delivered them from Egypt. In other words, the Lord is reminding his people, I am able and willing to redeem you, to care for you. I've done so already. You can trust me. I am the Lord. I think one of the reasons we struggle to trust promises, and we do struggle to trust them, I think one of the reasons we struggle to trust promises is that we're so often disappointed by the reality of our own ability to keep them and of the ability of others to keep them. It's one of the reasons. Human promises are weak because men are not able to keep their word often. Children, I want you to think about this for a minute. I want to provide you an example of human weakness in keeping promises. Now, I don't often share stories from my own life, but today I want to share two because I think they're relevant to this point. When I was six years old, 
my dad bought me a fishing pole for Christmas. I got that fishing pole December 25th, 1979. Now you're getting a gauge of my age. Now that was December 25th. He promised me that he would take me on a fishing trip for my seventh birthday. Now my birthday, so you know, is June 29th. So my 50th is coming up. I will receive your gifts. So it's coming. I, but it's coming up. And I remember from December 25th to June 29th, waiting with great anticipation for my seventh birthday when I'd finally go on the fishing trip my dad had promised. And he actually gave me the pole as a kind of sensible sign, didn't he? So that I could look there and remember his promise to me. But I woke up in the early morning of June 20th, 1980, nine days before my seventh birthday. My dad was a police officer. He had been out at work that night. And when I awoke in the morning, I woke to hearing my mom weeping and my house filled with police officers. And I was taken aside and told that my dad was killed in the line of duty that night. Do you know what my first question was? Does this mean we're not going on our fishing trip? My dad was not able to keep his promise. He's just a man. He's mortal. My dad could make a promise he intended to keep, but he could never ground his promise in his being the almighty, immortal, invisible, ever-living, all-wise God. Never. He died. God lives. He could never make a promise and ground that promise in the statement, I am the Lord. Never. Neither can any of us. This is the most fundamental basis of our assurance that God's word is good. It is the Lord who made these promises. He is the God who lives and never dies. He's not a creature. He is able to do all his holy will. He is holy and he cannot lie. He therefore will do all his holy will. So when he's made a promise, you never have to worry that it won't be kept. That it will fail. The most fundamental assurance we have of God's word is that it's the word of God. Second, let's consider the second way the Lord assures Abram. The Lord provides him a kind of sensible sign. Look at Genesis 15, verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? See, I'm going to give you this land. And Abram says, How am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now you're going to go on and see a vision. I'm not going to spend time just in that vision just yet because I'll spend that on the next point. But what I'm saying here is that God is giving Abram a sensible sign. He's giving him a vision. Like my dad gave me a fishing pole. 
Like God gave Noah a rainbow, like he gives us baptism or the Lord's Supper, he gives these signs so that we have a way to see that he's faithful in the promises we can't see the fulfillment of. So he gave Abram this sign. Now, what's interesting is some people want to speculate that Abram's actually lacking faith here when he says, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words, he's really asking the Lord for a sign. Now, I want to contend to you that Abram is not doubting the Lord. He's not doubting in the sense that he lacks faith in the Lord. He's doubting in the sense that he lacks faith in himself to keep believing. He's asking the Lord to strengthen his faith. He's a man. He doesn't see how the promises could be kept given all the opposition in front of him. I know it's easy to be critical of Abram here after all the Lord has done, but imagine for a moment you're him. You've been asked to leave your home, your country, your family, to go with your lifelong barren wife in old age to a promised land where you will have multiplying offspring with her. And when you come into that land, the land suffers famine and then war. And you see the enemy nations descended from Ham all throughout the land of Canaan. And the Lord says, look around, Abram. Someday all of this will be yours, and your offspring will be more numerous than the stars. Friends, more than that. Do you know what the New Testament also tells us Abram knew? Abram knew that he was looking forward to an even greater inheritance than a nation in that land. He knew, Paul tells us in Romans 4.13, that he would be the heir of the whole earth. He knew, as I think Paul in Hebrews 11 tells us, that he would be the heir of the new heavens and the new earth, the city whose architect and builder is God. But Abram could not see any of that. Couldn't see it. He couldn't even see how he was going to be the heir of that particular land with multiplying offspring. He had a barren wife and enemies all around. Let alone how he would be the heir of the new heavens and the new earth. What's more, Abram knew there would be many years of suffering to come for his people. The Lord told him so. Look at Genesis 15, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. We've sort of tamed the language. Slaves. It's what it is. There'll be slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, here's the thing. Abram, I will eventually bring judgment on these nations around here in the promised land. Eventually. But their iniquity is not yet complete. I, as God, am going to be patient with them for 400 more years seeking their repentance. 
And because I'm going to be patient with them for 400 more years seeking their repentance, you're going to go into a land that is not your own, be sojourners there, be enslaved and oppressed there. And your people are going to be afflicted. They're going to suffer. They're going to suffer for 400 years, if you will, waiting for a promise they cannot see. It's hard to face that kind of reality. I know when we read these stories, they're all so compacted into short books. We can read Genesis and Exodus in a few hours. Imagine if the Lord tells you that suffering your child's going through is never going to end. Not in your lifetime. That's what Abram's hearing. You think it might be difficult to continue to trust God's promises in the face of that? Your children, not only will they continue to suffer, they'll continue to suffer for four generations in this sense, 400 years. Longer than our nation's even been a nation. Christians, I bring that up because Hebrews has us in the wilderness, suffering affliction, waiting for the promised land, the new heavens and new earth. Hebrews has us there. And Second Peter tells us that's because God is being patient with those around the earth that he might save all his people. But we can't see the fulfillment of those promises. We just see the suffering around us. And we have a hard time keeping a grip on God's promises. Now, Exodus through Joshua, those books will play out what the Lord is saying here. But here's the point. Abram has been given a promise by the Lord that he cannot see. And all that Abram can see tells him a different story. The Lord says that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I'm going to tell you, you might be young enough not to realize this yet, but eventually you will understand it. You can't always see how the Lord is working for your good. You just have to take him at his word. I still have no idea why the Lord took my dad when I was six years old and his dad when he was two years old. I've never known a man in my family line. Do you know that? I will be the first one to ever meet his grandson if the Lord spares me the next couple weeks. (laughs) Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. But I know God's word says it's for my good. And I believe it. The world around Abram is cursed and hostile. And so what Abram is doing here is asking the Lord to help him in his weakness. Abram's asking for a sensible sign. He's not questioning the Lord's faithfulness. Rather, he is trusting the Lord's kindness to help him in his unbelief. He's doing the opposite of the faithless move of King Ahaz. In Isaiah 7, the Lord encouraged King Ahaz to ask for a sign. The Lord said to King Ahaz, I will give you a sign. King Ahaz of Judah is in the midst of Judah's troubles, if you will. And the Lord says, I'll give you a sign that one day I will redeem you. 
Now listen, Isaiah 7.10, don't turn there, just listen. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask whatever you will for a sign. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Say, well, that sounds faithful on Ahaz's part, right? And he said, the Lord said, here's his response. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? This is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord, that you weary my God also. The Lord is kindly intervening in the midst of Judah's trouble to offer a sensible sign to strengthen the faith of his people through their king. But King Ahaz is proudly rejecting such kindness. Proudly rejecting it. Friends, Abram is acting in faith when he requests a sign. He believes the Lord is kind and the Lord will help him. He's the opposite of Ahaz here. King Ahaz is filled with pride and rejects the kind offer of the Lord. Abram is humbly accepting his own weakness and asking the Lord for help. It's not a picture of Abraham's doubt in the Lord's promise. No, it's a picture of Abram's humble recognition that he needs the Lord's help and that he believes the Lord is kind enough to help him. That reminds us of the story of the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9, doesn't it? Do you remember that story? The father of the demon-possessed boy comes to Jesus for help. He cries out to Jesus because his precious son was being convulsed and tortured by this demon into water, into fire. Do you guys remember that story? He has nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. No one else who can help his beloved son. And so he comes to Jesus, and Jesus basically says to him, Trust me, I can deliver your son. What was the father's response? Listen to Mark 9, 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This is what Abram is doing in this scene. Abram's saying, I believe, help my unbelief. And sovereign grace, this is one of the reasons why we're commanded to gather every Lord's day, to stir one another up to love and good works. Why? That's why we participate in private worship and family worship and corporate worship. It's why we open our Bibles. It's why we baptize and receive the Lord's Supper. We need the Lord to strengthen our faith. We come to the Lord as beggars looking for some bread, and we do not want to be like prideful King Ahaz, whose basic creed is, I've got this. I don't need the Lord's help. Rather, we open the Bible with a great sense of our desperate need for his help. We get on our knees in prayer with a great sense of our desperate need for his help. We run to corporate worship knowing our profound need to hear from our Lord, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, as he speaks to us by his spirit through word and sacrament on the Lord's day. He promises to be present among us. You want to be where the Lord is and where he's speaking? You come to where he gathers because he promises to be there. Where else would you want to be? 
And what more do you need than that? In fact, it's why I exhort you to see the whole day is the Lord's day. It's not the Lord's hour and a half. You know that? It's the Lord's day. I plead with you to rearrange your priorities so that you can set aside this day to worship the Lord morning and evening, as we see in the biblical pattern. They worshiped morning and evening because of their own sense of their need and because of their belief that Christ promises to be there with them to help them. There's more than that. You run to Christ. You run to the place where he promises to be. Will he be with you when you're reading your Bible and praying? Sure. But he promises to be specially present in the gathered congregation to speak to his people. So you run there saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. So I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you here. I hope you know that. I'm sincerely calling you to the humility. The humility that says, I can't afford to miss morning and evening worship with Christ's people. I need to plan my whole week so that I've cleared my schedule and have time to gather with Christ's people, not because I always want to. I don't always want to. I get up in the morning, some mornings, and don't want to come. And I'm the pastor. Sometimes in the afternoon, I'm in the middle of my nap, and I'm thinking, I'd rather do something else than get dressed again and go back. But I need to be there. I need you to, if you will, humbly come to your senses and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, you might be wondering, do our elders then really believe it's prideful to avoid gathering on morning and evening on the Lord's Day? No, not necessarily prideful. Maybe, not necessarily. But friends, our elders didn't decide that we just wanted more work for the pastors. It'd be nice if you guys put on another service because you need something to do on Sunday. We don't do this because it's just we need an activity in our week. You know, I'm golfing Monday through Saturday. It's time to take a break and have a worship service. That's not how pastors live. I've been asked that before. We put in all this effort because we humbly submit to you that we and you need it. We and you need it. Think about your own heart and mind. Do you really think that you're so spiritually strong that you don't need it? Is that your self-assessment? I've got this. I know the Lord gave me sensible signs in the sacraments and appointed ministers so that Christ could speak to me, but I've got this. I don't need that. I can do it on my own. While I wouldn't argue that missing corporate worship is always driven by pride, there are obviously legitimate reasons to miss corporate worship. You're sick. You're called in to work. You're on vacation. I understand that. But I would argue that having a pattern of life that places other things as a higher priority such that you do not arrange your week to be free on the Lord's day for worship, is driven by ignorance about your own condition and what's happening in a worship service at best, or by pride in your own self-satisfaction at worst. In fact, 
In most cases, it's driven by a serious underestimation of our own creaturely weakness and sinfulness and a serious underestimation of what's happening in a corporate worship service. That's why you see the nation clamor for students who skip class for a week to pray and sing. Revival, finally God is present. And I want to tell people, if revival is the special presence of God, then it happens here every Sunday morning at 9.30 and at 5 p.m. over at Living Grace. And it's happening in churches all across America when the word of God is opened among his people, Christ promises to be present. If you want that, you just come here. So I know that we're clamoring for some special presence of the Lord, and I want you to know, whether you feel it or not, He's present where his word's being preached. I don't always feel that. Sometimes I feel nothing. And I'm the one preaching. But it's true. Sometimes I'm preaching in the midst of my own suffering. This has happened in my life. Wondering as I'm preaching, do I believe what I'm even saying? But I need it, so I'm here. You need to hear from the Lord. You need to see his promises in worship. That's why he gives us such gifts. Yes, be in the word and prayer on your own with your families, but please do not forget that the Lord promised to be present in corporate worship, and he has entrusted us with sensible signs to strengthen your faith in the gathered congregation. Christians, we all need the help the Lord offers us. We all need it. He offers you help. He offers it to you. Are you too busy to take it? Do you have too many other things to do than to receive the help of the Lord? Third, the Lord ratifies a covenant with a self-maledictory oath. Look at Genesis 15, 9 again. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So he's essentially cut a set of animals in half, and he's taken each piece and made like an aisle that you walk through. Abram knows what the Lord wants him to bring those animals for. He's bringing sacrificial animals for a covenant-cutting ceremony. That's what he's doing. And he's splitting the animals for an aisle. So listen to what goes on. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So a vision's happening. Now go down to verse 17. We'll see the end of this, because we already read these in between verses. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That is... Picking up the same imagery you're going to later see in the Exodus with a pillar of cloud and a fire, smoking pot and torch. And the smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made, literally in the Hebrew, cut a covenant with Abram. He cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, etc. The Lord is giving Abram a vision of covenant ratification. That's the word in Genesis 15, 18. The word is literally the Lord cut a covenant. When we talk about cutting a covenant, we're talking about ratifying a covenant. It's a way of ratifying it. The Lord had already made 
these same covenant promises of land and seed to Abram in Genesis 12. He made those promises. But in Genesis 15, we see the Lord ratify those covenant promises. Now, this particular covenant ratification has a self-maledictory oath tied to it. When I say self-maledictory, I will do bad things to myself if I don't keep my word. You hear that? What do I mean? Well, many scholars refer to this covenant as akin to what's called a royal land grant in the ancient Near East. A royal land grant in the ancient Near Eastern covenants went like this. A king of a land would graciously grant to one of his subjects some portion of the land. He grants to one of his subjects. And the Lord is granting here land to Abram. But this particular scene is startling. Why? Well, first, it's startling because God is the one covenanting with Abram. Not a human king covenanting with a human subject. Men might covenant with each other this way. But here, Abram's receiving a covenant promise from the Lord. It's sheer grace. You understand that? For the Lord to condescend and covenant with a man is already an unmerited kindness. But for the Lord to condescend to covenant with sinful and rebellious man, what manner of love is this? What kindness and grace is this? But it's startling because of how the vision occurs. Abram cuts the animals and makes a kind of aisle between their dead bodies, if you will, the parts of their carcass. Now, what would typically happen in a royal land-grant covenant is that the subject of the king would walk down the aisle. And the king would say, I promise to give you this land and care for you and protect you as long as you're faithful to me and obedient to me. If you break my covenant, the king will say to the subject, then I will do to you what's been done to those animals. I will cut you to pieces. How do we know that? How do we know that kind of covenant existed in that era? We know that from Jeremiah. Jason read to you from Jeremiah this morning. Israel had renewed the covenant with the Lord, the Mosaic covenant. They renewed it, and they ratified the covenant this way. Listen to Jeremiah 34, 18 again. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and in the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Now note that the people in this covenant ratification renewal walked between the pieces, and thus the curse would fall upon the people. Yet here in our passage in Genesis 15, look who goes between the pieces. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That is a picture, a theophany of the Lord. Who goes between the pieces? The Lord does. It's a vision of the Lord himself going between the pieces. And as he walks between them, Abram doesn't walk between them. Only the Lord does. And the Lord is saying, 
And Abram would know what he's saying. If I break my covenant, may I be torn to pieces like those animals that I walked between. Friends, this is shocking. It's shocking that the Lord would covenant with man, that the Lord would covenant with sinful, rebellious man, and that the Lord would swear a self-maledictory oath. May I be torn to pieces if I fail to keep my covenant. What has Abram done in any of this? All God's grace. Abram. It's like the Lord saying, Abram, the covenant is so sure, so steadfast that I, the Lord, will be torn to pieces if I break it. In other words, the Lord is inviolably committed to keeping his promises. Human promises are often weak because men are not willing to keep their word. They're not willing to keep their word. Not just because they're not able to keep their word, but they're not willing to keep their word. In other words, I make you a promise, but due to my own sin, my word might not be trustworthy. We've all had people make promises to us, haven't we, that they haven't kept. When I was eight years old, I'm tying it to the fishing story because it continues. When I was eight years old, my mom had had a long-term boyfriend at that point. He promised me that he would take me on the fishing trip that my dad wasn't able to take me on. I remember well when the big day came. I remember it really well. That day came, and I got my fishing pole and my gear, and I went outside in the front yard a couple hours before he was supposed to come and excitedly waited for him to come pick me up. And I waited, and I waited, and he never came. He decided he had something better to do, and he failed to keep his word. The Lord is not like that. The Lord is not only able but willing to keep his promises. He is so committed to keep his promises that he puts his own name on the line. Sovereign Grace, let me carry this one step further. The Lord graciously and unconditionally made promises to us. But he also bound us to particular obligations, didn't he? We are called to believe and to obey. Adam failed, Israel failed, and we fail again and again to uphold our obligations. We continually rebel and transgress God's law. Though God never fails to keep his promises, we keep failing. He also, though, I want you to hear this. God also did not fail to keep our obligations for us. He not only kept his promises... He kept our obligations for us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. He's going to keep it for us to redeem those who are under the law. We need a redemption. God sent his son to keep our obligations for us. We continually rebelled and transgressed God's law. Now, while the Lord has never failed to keep his promises, he also didn't fail to keep our obligations. It's remarkable. He sent Christ, our Savior, for us. And what did Jesus announce? Not only did Jesus say he has come to fulfill all righteousness, 
But when he was in the upper room with his disciples, he was cutting a new covenant in his blood. He was going to the cross to pay our penalty. He was keeping our obligations, not only in precept or command, but in penalty. He was going to be cut to pieces in our place. In our place, condemned Jesus stood. So I guess the question is, do you trust him? Have you cast yourself upon Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Unbeliever, I exhort you to look to Christ and be saved. You will be forgiven of your sins. Flee your sin and cast yourself on the faithful God of grace and upon his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And believers, I, sovereign grace, I would encourage you to look anew to Christ and sing in thanksgiving to his name. Every failure, every weakness, every wickedness, every rebellion, every sin, without exception, Christ willingly took upon himself all of your sin. He did not come because we deserved him. He did not even come because we asked for him. We never did. He came because God promised he would. He promised he would because he is the Lord of all grace. And so we behold our God. We behold our God. When you cannot see your way to heaven, when the pains and toils of this world have occluded your vision, look to Christ, trust his word, come to his table and taste and see that the Lord is good. Cry out to him, I believe, help my unbelief. He will not fail you. He's the only one who will not fail you. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your son to be exalted among us, that we would trust him, that we would trust the promises of your word kept in him, that we would continue to look to him for grace, that we would not in any way be ignorant of the promises of help that you've made for our faith, nor of our own weakness and need for your help, but that we would run to you over and over again. That we would see every Lord's Day like steps on the way to heaven, giving us assurance that we would be daily in your word and prayer, knowing you promised to be there to help us. Help us to kill pride and sin and to walk in faith and humility and godliness. We trust your son to do this work in us by the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.